It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Money seems to be falling from the sky. We got a revenue forecast update this week, and we're looking at $6.5 billion that the General Assembly will be able to spend on the budget. Or not spend. When we started the session in January, right, we're telling clients... No money. No money, right? We're coming out of COVID. Businesses have been suffering. Income tax. Expecting a shortfall. Yeah, yeah. It was like going to be four something billion in a shortfall. Yeah. Then it swings the other way. A four and a half billion dollar surplus the state's looking at. But this week, this major announcement, right? It was a major announcement. When that revenue forecast came out, I think on Tuesday morning, the appropriations, big chairs all got that revenue forecast. And then on Tuesday afternoon, we saw the press releases from the governor, from the speaker, and from the president pro tempore. So to quote Representative Jason Sane, quoting Biggie Smalls, mo money, mo problems, not everyone is in agreement on what to do here, right? That is accurate. The governor said, hey, look, we have a lot of money. We could do some of these tax breaks that y'all want, but we could also do some other things, spend a little bit more money. That's what Governor Cooper said. And then Senator Berger said, look, we can do those tax breaks. Just because we have more money doesn't mean that we're over collecting. It means that we should give that money back to the people of North Carolina. And then Speaker Moore's press release basically read something like, this is because of the fiscal strategies of the Republicans. Look at us. So, you know, good problem to have, but definitely a problem. Uh, We expected the Senate budget to hit this week. They are delayed, but it sounds as if we are going to have uh, a budget next week that the Senate's going to roll out. I imagine that we're going to see some of what Senator Berger is saying, hinting that maybe we should give some of this money back to the taxpayers. And that would be consistent with their tax plan that we've been talking about the last few weeks. Yeah, very consistent. Another big news this week, we have been talking about it on the podcast, hinting that you know behind closed doors they've been working on an energy bill the entire session. Uh, and then we saw 50 pages hit this week it's been interesting to watch we do not have a dog in this fight so from that perspective it's interesting um not our problem but other people there seem to be a ton of people involved a lot of lobbyists there at the building yesterday that you've never seen or you rarely see that were working on that bill duke energy uh seems to be the winner in this 50 page document Uh, Some of the losers would be uh, solar energy. sounds like they're on the losing side. Talking to legislative staff, they said that, you know, lobbyists were certainly making the rounds, and it tended to be just kind of like vote no or vote yes was kind of the message that lobbyists were delivering. I imagine we're going to see some changes to this bill as it moves across. Today, the bill has a hearing 
right now, actually, and it is for discussion only. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that discussion, whether they do decide to make some tweaks to that. We saw an election bill that was broken up into three sections. Senate Republicans were hoping for a better outcome. I think they were going to break up that bill to try to get some votes on a few of them. There's some top line items that I would cover. One is that it would not allow ballots that came in past election day to be counted. They have to be in on election day. I read somewhere that like half of states do that. So we're kind of one way you're in one half of states, the other way you're in the other half. I do know that there was a provision to allow for online voter registration. I had seen at the end of last week, Senator Newton had tweeted out that he met with the Board of Elections and worked out an online voter registration amendment that he was going to offer. So that came up this week. There are provisions in the bills to ensure that we would comply with the voter ID requirements that have passed the General Assembly, even though those are still in court. Eventually, you're going to have to have some form of ID. And I think that there is a provision to allow for like mobile units Mm -hmm. so that you could go get an ID at a mobile unit to be able to vote. So the vote was a party line vote. Mm-hmm. I thought the Democrats used an interesting kind of strategy yesterday in voting. They had very few comments. There was very little debate. Their message, I think, to Republicans was that they just weren't involved in the process and, and therefore they're voting no. I think Republicans frustrated that they saw that as a partisan move because they feel like it's a common sense bill. Again, we don't have a dog in this fight either, but it is making for a lot of high stakes drama in the Senate. It'll be interesting to see how the House reacts to these three bills and what they do with them. Speaking of divisive issues, there was the abortion decision that came out of the Fourth Circuit yesterday that came out yesterday. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So this stems from the 2015 abortion bill that the legislature passed. So it's been in the court system for a while, and it banned abortions after 20 weeks. And the Fourth Circuit found that that was unconstitutional, which I think is consistent with what the lower courts had said. And so they're looking for that case to go to the Supreme Court. What kind of timeline would we be looking at and seeing this head up to the Supreme Court? It could be a while. I also think that there are other states that have harder bans on abortion. I think Texas, Mm -hmm. some other southern states had maybe rougher bans as far as six weeks or all abortions are banned. So those cases may be the ones that are taken up and ours may not, but ours would center more around that viability stage. So maybe ours would be the one that they take up. I'm not sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Supreme Court sometimes cobbles these cases together, right? That's right. So they would take a a general theme, cobble them together and then present the case. Yeah. Yeah. We'll continue to watch that. This week, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Senator Kirk Devier from Cumberland County. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. 
Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Senator Devier, in your second term as a state senator from Fayetteville, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. First, can you just tell us about your district, where you're from, and kind of what makes your district special? Yeah, so Cumberland County is really, in District 19, is really a microcosm, I call it, of North Carolina. So we've got a little bit of urban, we've got a little bit of rural, very diverse community with cultures from all different walks of life. Um, so it makes it very unique to represent. Uh, I'm not from there. Uh, the military brought me there. Okay. Uh, so I served in the military for about 10 years and uh, got out of the military, moved to Fayetteville and uh, grew up in Florida. I grew up in a itty bitty town called Chipley in the panhandle of Florida on a dirt road, single wide trailer, no air conditioner. Uh, so it makes you appreciate uh, this great AC that we have right here compared to how hot it is outside. I remember watching that 2018 race. You challenged Senator Wesley Meredith. It was a bruising campaign. It's an understatement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember the ads. Your pocket squares That's were right. prominent. My million-dollar pocket square. That's I even wore one for you today. <laughs> and then 2020... No easier. You squeak no. that out, I think, 51.7%. Correct. You're, you're coming out of this bruising campaigns, and you're in the Senate, but you have managed to build some relationships across the aisle. Can you talk about what it's like to transition from the campaign into the North Carolina Senate where you have to do work? Yeah, I think it's been different my first term and second term. So the first term you came in and, you know, I came in with a class that we upset a lot of incumbents, Mm -hmm. Um, the class that I came in with in the Senate. And so it was a different feel. You walk around, you feel like you got a target on your back a little bit. But my nature is that I want to talk to people and I want to build relationships because that's how you get things done. It's how we got things done on city council. And it's just my nature. Coming into this year was a little bit different. You know, I expanded the lead. We beat the same person. Um, But I knew I wanted to come back and do things differently and expand those relationships that I really had worked on in the short session uh, of the 18 session or the 19 session, I should say. I mean, really grow those relationships and uh, find ways to get things done that are important to our district, to our state, and and realize that, you know, the only way we're going to move forward uh, as a state or as a community is when you find that common ground you can focus on those energy we're always not going to agree on everything but we can focus on the the key parts that we believe we have in common and try to move forward and it's not always going to be what you want and so i just took that approach which has really been my approach in my business life and in my political life so far um, but 18 is just different because you come in you have this big target on your back you just took out a four-term incumbent you know, the people aren't in the supermajority anymore. A lot of things are coming at you. Um, and so you just have to kind of find your footing. And that's what I tried to do in my first term and in my second term. And really showed that in the short session, kind of who I am and begin to build those relationships. And then continue that even out of cycle, even in during the campaign cycle. I mean, I still had conversations with senators because we had to deal with different things, with COVID and everything else that was going on. Um, and then just have really tried to work that as, We've got back into session this year. You know, there's a lot of good people here, a lot of good hearts, and people really truly want the same things. And I think that's part of my time in the military. I mean, you just have that common kind of bond and focus on 
what's important. Mission first, people always. Do you feel like being in the military, you have bonded with other members, legislative members who are also come from that sort of background? I, I think so. I mean, I think there's a piece of that. I mean, I think everybody wants to support the military and veterans, mm-hmm. and that's a piece. I think you you get some, you know, immediate respect and understanding that this is a guy that served, so there's a certain characteristic that comes with that. I mean, um, but I think at the end of the day, I think it's about finding those people that kind of, you know, what I learned in the military, mission first, people always, people that are going to want to put people at the center of the decision and there's a lot of those in the general assembly in the senate and in the house on both sides of the aisle when you're thinking about your district putting people first putting your district first sometimes that puts you at odds with maybe your caucus maybe even with the governor and that has to be a painful decision that you make because you want to support the governor you want to support your colleagues but you have voted with your district school reopening was a big high profile vote that you took this session yeah it can be more painful than you know yeah. um yeah. <laughs> but the way I, I view it is that you know when i believe in something i believe in something um and just like last session so people could say i put my district second but i put the people first because when we looked at last session and we were really focused on how we can expand health care i was very resolute on that and stood ground with 20 other senators and we held the line trying to continue to push for expanded health care and so many other things in our public education system and so that's kind of what I carry into this time, too. I'm resolute, and I believe that the, the children should have been in school. The best place that they could learn is in school, and that's what I heard from a lot of people in my district. A lot of people didn't agree, but a lot of people did agree. But I believe that that's where we needed to go. Um, I had conversations early on with people in my caucus, with the governor, yeah. um, to say this is what I believe and this is what I'm hearing, and we really need to find a pathway through this that protects our children protects our teachers protects our schools um and those are hard votes but you know you have to take those and i believe some may not believe it but i believe the votes that i took in the direction that i took eventually got us to the compromise that we saw and if it takes some of that pain to get there then that's okay because at the end of the day our children are going to be taken care of our teachers are going to be taken care of and we're doing the right thing for north carolina so let's back up a little bit. Okay. Um, let's talk about your entrance into politics. You are on the Fayetteville City Council. So how does a kid from a uh, street in Florida <laughs> become interested in politics? And then how did you decide to run for the Senate? Yeah, so um, I was in the background on politics for several years. Actually, my first entrance into politics, I got a beat down in a mayor's race <laughs> in okay. 2013. Got beat pretty bad in the primary. Um, and then kind of stepped back and uh, realized there was an opportunity for me to run for city council and said, again, I want to make an impact. I want to, you know, affect people's lives and help them uh, do better. And I believe there was a lot of voices that weren't being heard. And I wanted to bring that voice to the table, whether it was, a, you know, someone that lived in poverty the way I grew up or military voice. And I wanted to be able to elevate those voices. And I think that I saw the same thing when I ran for Senate. So I saw that the population was getting left behind. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's another tie back to the military. You never leave anybody behind. That's just what you do. That's what you it's ingrained in you. And as I looked across our community and across the state in some ways, I saw certain populations were getting left behind whether they didn't have health care or they didn't have this or they didn't have that. Um, and it just drove me to say, I'm going to strap my boots back on and I'm going to jump back into service and, and do this. And 
People looked at me and said, you're really going to run against this four-term incumbent. You've seen what he's done. He's a tremendous campaigner. And I just said, well, you know, if it's the right thing to do, then we'll, nobody will outwork me. So I'm going to go work as hard as I can. And if this is supposed to be and the people want to change, then they're going to elect me. You are very involved in your community with tackling the issue of systemic poverty. Uh, have convened a committee, I believe, in the Fayetteville area? So we actually have a coalition. It's called Pathways for Prosperity. It's about 28 different organizations around Cumberland County. Ironically, I was on a call uh, this morning about it, uh, just kind of an update call with the leadership team. Um, And that's one of those things I was talking about is how you elevate that voice. You know, when we've got one in four kids living in poverty in our community, when we've got one of the highest poverty rates, um, you know, we've got 11 census tracts that are off the charts in rates of poverty, and it's just pockets, and they've been overlooked for years, um, and it's nothing that they did. You know, it all it goes all the way back to a Harvard study that talks about, you know, how certain kids in certain zip codes are going to be worse off than their families if we don't change certain things. Um, and what it, when we began to talk about it, we began to see other people that were interested in and across the community, and we saw these silos of everybody trying to do their mentor group and this and that. So we just brought that coalition together and it creates a louder voice. And so we've elevated that around things like, how are we doing affordable housing? How are we looking at mentoring for our parents? How are we looking at, you know, childcare? How are we looking at all these critical things? If we can just tweak them just a little bit, the outcome that you can change on somebody's life is tremendous. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your path from growing up in in poverty to million dollar pockets there. <laughs> <laughs> I, extremely blessed. Um, I had a mom that uh, just poured everything into me and just truly, um, truly taught me that with hard work and you know commitment, you can really accomplish anything. And I watched her pour into me. Um, and my brother at very early ages and provided me that opportunity, public school. I mean, she poured everything in. We couldn't afford for me to go to college, Um, but she did everything she could to make sure that I did that, and that's how I ended up in the military, to help pay for college. Um, But I learned a lot of early lessons. You know, you you don't know what you don't have, Um, and my mom always made sure that we we had everything we needed, whether she had to work two or three jobs to do it. And I think that lesson of hard work and persistence uh, just followed me through. Um, I've made some missteps, you know, I've made some bad business deals and I've made, you know, we've made missteps along the way, but uh, I feel very blessed where I am. I've always stayed committed. She's always reminded me to stay grounded. Uh, remember who you're, you know, at the end of the day, you've always got to give back um, and never remember, never forget where you came from. Um, and so I'll never forget that dirt road, that trailer, that, you know, little building that I lived in outside of it in my bedroom. Um, and I always want to ensure that I'm providing a voice for that same little boy that was right there. Mm-hmm. Do you have an idea about how, what in the General Assembly, how the General Assembly really could tackle poverty? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a, that's a great question. I think everybody comes at it differently. Um, and, you know, people say, you just give people a job. Well, you know, if they don't have transportation to get a job, if they're, they don't have, you know, a house they can live in, if they're bouncing around, you know, I mean, there's just so many things that impact it. And I think where we can make the investments is if we really look upstream, as I would mm-hmm. say, to so look at the true cause and effect of how things happen. When you look at childcare and we look at affordable housing and we look at investing to make sure that we have good jobs, investing in broadband so people have that access and they can, you know, they can do the things they need to do 
through studies or advancements for you know more a better job or those types of things so there's a lot of things that inherently that i believe that we can invest in or invest more in as a general assembly um i just think people get caught up in how we get there mm-hmm. and that we use these buzzwords around you know oh it's just welfare or you know people you you can't you can't just you know invest in programs. Well, sometimes you have to, but sometimes you also have to have a way for people to step up. And you've got to understand that you got to believe in people at mm-hmm. the end of the day. That not everybody, yeah, there's going to be a few people on both sides that are not going to do exactly the right thing with the right program or, or situation they're put in. But the majority of people are good, and they just want a better life. And so if you create those conditions, and if we'll agree to invest in those conditions... We can, we can move North Carolina in a direction, and we can lift a lot of people out of poverty. And guess what? See, I talk about it in prosperity. So if you notice, the name of our coalition is Pathway to Prosperity mm-hmm. because right. everybody wants that life. Think about just if you tweak the home ownership. Think about the wealth gap that is changed just by taking the, the biggest asset that a person can have. So if we talk about that prosperity, everybody lifts up. Big business lifts up. Small business lifts up. You know, government programs are actually reduced because people don't need them anymore. They're self-sufficient because they're prosperous. If we can look at it that way and take that lens versus this political left-right lens, I think we can do better. Senator Todd Johnson was on the podcast last week, and, and after the recording, he talked about his relationship with you. And he really says that he enjoys talking to you, your perspective about um, policy. What are your conversations like with the Republicans about your ideas about poverty and prosperity? Great question. You know, that's one thing that I've enjoyed this session. It's been a very difficult session so far. We've only been here a little while, but um, getting in to share ideas and have dialogue with, you know, people, whether it's Senator Newton talking about tax policy or Todd talking about small business, Senator Johnson talking about small business, or Senator Perry on a health care issue, or working with Senator Ballard on, on putting our kids back in school. I mean, having that opportunity to have dialogue with them around it, I think some of them kind of step back and say, well, we're kind of similar on this. And I'm mm-hmm. like, exactly. Like, mm-hmm. we're not all that different in the grand scheme of things is how we come at it. And if we can have those conversations and have that dialogue and not get in our corners. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how I was in my first session because I felt like I was walking around with a target on my back and nobody would want to talk to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if we can continue to do that, um, we can get better legislation and we can, you know, we can do better for North Carolina. Going into 2022, do you still feel like there's a target on your back? When you're in a 50-50 district, (laughs) look, I clearly understand at the end of the day, it's about numbers there. Um, And I don't pretend to to do that. But I I do believe that um, I think the other side of the aisle understands who I am and and where my voice is. Um, And I think you think you're always going to have a target on your back when you're in a 50-50 district. But you know what? It keeps me grounded. It keeps, uh, as old Sergeant Major said, it keeps my boots muddy because I'm going to get out there and I'm going to understand my district. And I'm going to know, and they're going to—they're not going to outwork me. I'll tell you that. So they can do what they want, but they won't outwork me in my district. Is your district um, kind of the remains of Senator Tony Rand's old district? It has pieces of it. So Senator Rand, who's actually—I'm 
this lapel pin was actually his. Um, okay. So uh, it's interesting because it's different than everybody else's and everybody looks at it. Um, great man. But so Senator Rand had part of Bladen County as well. Okay. 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 So I just have Cumberland County and that shifted uh, a little bit. Um, and it actually got redistricted in uh, 2019 in 2017 before I ran just a little bit. It tweaked a little bit, but I'm just one county. Okay. Did you know Senator Rand? Knew him very well. Did a lot of work with him. That's one of the reasons why I'm wearing his pen. He was a, was a good man, a good mentor. And uh, when I was making the decision to run, uh, he was one of the people that uh, you just have to go have a conversation with and let him grumble at you a little bit. And, um, you know, there's good days. And, you know, there's days that you call him Tony, and there's days that you call him Senator Rand. I always called him Senator <laughs> Rand. The, uh, so when Senator Rand ran the Senate, and he essentially ran the Senate. He did. Um, it's funny. Even today I see vestiges of Senator Rand, the, the, the twirl, when mm-hmm. uh, to make a motion in the Senate. That was a Senator Rand twirl. Um, us sitting on the back row, and I love, Tony, I love Senator Rand. Us sitting on the back row as Democrats. This is Tony Rand. Yeah, yeah. Did, he ran it. I mean, if he wanted it, he got it. If he didn't want it, it died. What's it like? not having part of the seat but uh you know being a democrat in a really top-down senate let's all agree on that right it's top down what's that like being and and you're you're in the private sector you're used to just moving pieces quickly right and and this is a conversation we've had with senator perry and others who come out of the business community it's 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 hard right it's it's challenging um it it is and i'll I'll take it a step further so you have senator Rand. Um, and you know, Senator Meredith did a lot for our county. I mean, I'm not gonna, you know, I gotta give, gotta give that to him. Um, and I did work with him within the county when he was a senator. So, following in both of those, and then you know, going through the type of budget that we went last year, um, and really not seeing those things kind of come back to the county, um, you know, it, it creates challenges. It, it can create a challenge, uh, but you again, you have to look at what's important. What are you fighting for? What do you believe in? Um, and continue to work the relationships because it truly is this place functions around uh, relationships. Yeah. It truly does. Sure does. All right. The million-dollar question. <laughs> million-dollar pocket square question. <laughs> Boy, we're taking this to the oh, limit. I like right? it. That pocket square is getting us a lot of miles. Y'all did see the commercials though, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, they were great. All right. If you could fix one thing in politics with your magic wand, what would your one thing be? You know, you'd think you'd be ready for this question because y'all ask it every time. Um, I think it would be around being able to discuss ideas and have ideas come forward. Um, Because I believe there's a lot of good ideas on both sides. And a lot of times it gets buried in legislation that nobody sees. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have to find ways to elevate that. And I don't know if it's through to say, look, every bill is going to get heard in a committee if you get X amount of bipartisan support, whatever that percentage is. And what that's going to do is that's going to force people to talk. Mm -hmm. Um, Or maybe it's saying, you know, we're running too many bills, so maybe you limit the number of bills. But I like that every bill gets heard because there's going to be a piece of something in there, there's going to be a good idea in there. I've seen it three or four times this session. I saw Senator Salvador have some great points on a business point that we were able to like elevate up, and Senator Newton's like, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Senator Batch elevated an idea, and other people see it. So there's, and there's ideas from both sides. I just think we don't get an opportunity to sit around a table, 
talk about those ideas and go, that's not bad. It doesn't have to be a left or right thing. It has to be a North Carolinian thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate we don't get to do that more yeah. because there is a lot of, I mean, 600, 700 something bills filed in the Senate. There's some good nuggets down in there. If we can pull those out, I mean, give you another example, you know, uh, around tax legislation, there's a VITA program. Senator Crawford brought this up. We talked to Senator Newton about it. He's like, that's, it's kind of a good idea. We, we got to like look at some of this stuff. Yeah. We've got to elevate these ideas on both sides mm-hmm. um, and be willing to have a conversation around because I re- truly believe that good government happens when you bring those ideas forward and you find the best ones and you move them forward no matter whose they are. Yeah. You know, the Senate has always been top down. Even we've talked about it on the podcast. Senator Baz Knight, Senator Rand ran it top down. But there, there did seem to be fewer caucus meetings or i should say not everything was caucus not every single issue it was very common for you know senator baz knight to not have the majority of his caucus so he goes to senator Berger or senator ballantyne or apodoc and say hey what kind of votes do you have can we get this passed and yeah, it seems like now it's like if the caucus doesn't like it we you know we're not going to do it wouldn't it be great if we get back to that? Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if you could go in there, people could, you know, one, another magic wand, do I get two? Sure. People could just go in there and vote the way they believed, yeah. the way they truly believed. It would be, I think it would be enlightening in some ways. Because yeah. I've talked to people on both sides. You know, man, I really don't want to vote for this, but I've got to because X, Y, Z. And you hear that on both sides, Al. Mm-hmm. If you have those relationships, you hear that. Yeah. It's just unfortunate. And it, and it goes both ways, right? Totally. I mean, Republicans totally. get frustrated with Democrats voting with the governor, voting with the Democratic caucus. Yep. They, yeah, it goes both ways. Well, Senator Devier, we appreciate you coming on to the podcast. We appreciate all you do for your district, all you do for the state. Sir, you certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you guys so much. This is a, a, a great show. Enjoy it. I don't know if you've heard, but Senator Devier is trying very hard to beat Senator Britt in the most listeners to his episode, so. This contest is on? Yeah. He yeah. tweeted that he didn't think he would get as many listens as Britt, Woodard, or Johnson, so we'll just, we'll just see how the leaderboard stacks up. I've noticed a little bit of jockeying between our guests. Everyone's aiming for Senator Britt, it seems. Yeah. The conversation with Senator Devier... I have to be, just admit it, right? I see this guy, he wears great suits, great pocket squares, as we mentioned in the conversation. Many times. Many times. Getting to have this conversation with him on a personal level on the podcast really opened my eyes to who he really is. I didn't know this about his background, grew up in a trailer. I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation and just sit down and and just hear who he is. Me too. He's really the epitome of what we're trying to do with the podcast, like learn people's backgrounds, understand who they are, where they come from. And it really was the prime example of that for us. Yeah. Don't judge a legislator by By his his pocket pocket square. square. (laughs) That's That's right. This week we had a question from our summer intern, Brandy Fuentes, who is with us for the summer. She's a Wingate University student, and we had a staff call on Monday. We do this every Monday at noon where 
the we get together and talk about our clients the week ahead the week behind us and we were talking about a pilot project that we're working on for a client and she asked what is a pilot and what what, what's the purpose of a pilot can you talk about that you see pilot programs especially in a year like this year where you have a ton of money to spend and a lot of that money is non-recurring funding so it has to be spent this year and not for something that is going to repeat yearly. You can you can test out a program in a selected area or in a couple of areas and see how it works there. Generally, it comes with some sort of report back to the General Assembly so they can take a look at the metrics, the data, and see whether or not that's something they want to continue to invest in. Think of it like an incubator in some ways. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the state they want ideas. Legislators want new ideas about how to tackle certain problems. It might be education, it might be transportation. And so, but they don't want to commit completely to a statewide program because it it hasn't worked out all the kinks. We're going to try something here. And so you might go into a county, you might go into two counties, might go into three counties, might have some diversity in those counties. You might go into low wealth, medium wealth, high wealth, western, eastern, and gives them an opportunity to see did this work or did it not work. And it's it's kind of a smart way of, of building up. For the client, you know, the risks are you're asked, you're getting one year funding or maybe two year funding and mm-hmm. it's non-recurring funding. So it's not baked into the budget. And so it's really up to you to show that this project worked. And oftentimes you go before education oversight or you go before health and human services oversight, whoever the overseeing committee is. And it's, it's a lot of pressure. And you have to have the courage to say, we failed or we have some tweaks to make or, hey, by the way, we really knocked it out of the park and we should ramp this up. Looking at this $6.5 billion surplus... I have the feeling that, you know, we are going to see a lot of pilot projects that lobbyists are working on for their clients. We're going to see some really great ideas and we're going to see some, um, let's just say, creative ideas. Sure. And maybe projects that are specific to someone's district that they want to try or a homegrown company that they want to try just in their community. As we opened up the show, we thought we would see a Senate budget this week. Did not happen. Next week, it sounds like committee meetings are already in order on the Senate side. What have you heard? I heard that the Senate will have their big appropriations meeting on Tuesday morning. So that would indicate that we will see a Senate budget on Monday. In budget week, whether it's the Senate or the House Uh, or the final budget, this process tends to just suck all the oxygen out of the room. It is everything budget. Everything comes to a standstill. You're in room 643, and it's just a stack of amendments. First, you'll see the bill come online, and it's well known that folks, lobbyists, sit online and just refresh, refresh the page to see the budget, which will come on the homepage of NCLEG. The first hearing of the Senate's version of the budget will be in appropriations-based budget on the Senate side. It will then go to finance. It will then go to pensions and 
then rules, and then the floor. So it's going to take up the entire week. Starting this on Tuesday, they'll end on Thursday. It'll be sent over to the House, and then the House will theoretically begin their process, although we know they've been working on their budget behind closed doors. I I do expect we're going to see some Democrats to vote for that Senate budget. I expect that, too. Back in the day, you know, you you talk about lobbyists who just hit, hit refresh, hit refresh. Back in the day, you literally waited for the printing of the budget. And I'd say 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you had to find a legislator or a staff person who would let you have a copy of their budget, which was like the size of a phone book. And, and, and maybe some of our listeners don't even know what a phone book looks like, but it was thick. And this was also before the advent of cameras being on our telephones. Mm-hmm. So you literally had to look at this huge document and you were just scribbling, scribbling, scribbling. Some legislators would let you take the budget out of their office Others, you just had a long line of lobbyists waiting to just write down where their budget was. And you would go to the telephone room and call your client and tell them what was in the budget. And then you told your client that they were in the budget by sending a bird to to carry the message to them. (laughs) Yeah, it's a lot different. It's a lot different, but it was also cooler because... The building would just be packed with lobbyists uh, waiting on this budget. So now we're all waiting on Monday night at our houses or wherever our offices. And like you said, we're just hitting refresh. So it's easier. But I miss the the olden days of of, um, seeing the sergeant at arms and the various clerks going around office to office delivering. With those carts. Yeah, delivering a budget. This past week, we got a mean tweet. I wouldn't say it was a mean tweet per se, and I'm not really sure who it was directed at, but we were tagged in it. It was our interview podcast with Senator Johnson. Yes. And so the tweet says, you better figure out how to pass the anti-CRT, that's critical race theory bill, and stop worrying about corporate America or we're going to ram this so far up your rhino bungholes, you'll need a team of Google engineers to get it back out again. (laughs) Sounds cleansing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so people who write stuff like this, I guess this is directed at Senator Johnson or is directed at us or what? Like, like how does this this guy writes this? And like, how are you expecting anyone to take that and go, okay, we need to pass the critical race theory bill? Well, maybe if you're worried about your bungle. (laughs) (laughs) I'm too much. Got that. Keep the mean tweets coming, but we can't promise you will understand what in the world you're talking about. You're going east this weekend. I'm going west, covering the state. Yeah, you're going to be in Wilkesboro? Yeah. All right, I'm heading to the beach. It's Father's Day weekend. The kids and Julie and the dogs, we're going to hang out. You're going to a baby shower, right? Yeah, for Father's Day weekend, I'm going to hang out with someone else's family. That's all right. I hope you take the time to rate, review, subscribe. If you like this podcast, give us five stars. If you don't like this podcast, keep it to yourself. Yeah, keep it to yourself. (laughs) 
Hope you have a relaxing Father's Day weekend, a great week ahead. And remember to do politics better. Should you maybe just do some more stories about how long we've been there and how old you are or something? (laughs) (laughs) You work that into every single podcast, so...